Hello, Midwestern Marks, comrades, viewers, watchers, readers. Um, viewers and watchers are the same thing, actually. Very quite similar. Uh, I'm here with, with my, my friend, my brother, my comrade, uh, Eric uh, Forsyth. He's a world-class blacksmith and also a world-class philosopher. We're in the same philosophy department. Um, but he's, as a blacksmith, he's a man of craft and he's also an artistic man. So I, I want to uh, talk with Eric today a little bit about art, uh, perhaps its relationship to revolutionary activity and the relationship that art might have intrinsically to work overall. Um, and I wanna start that by uh, going over an interesting story that Eric has uh, about one of the contests that, that he went to a, a blacksmithing contest. Um, so Eric, thank you for, for coming on. Um, if there's anything I'm missing in the introduction, please feel, feel free to fill any gaps. But um, if not, then you can uh, let us know about your story in Italy. I mean, no. Okay, great. Yeah, no, no, that's that's great. Uh, I don't know about world class anything, but but yeah. Um, so yeah, every every two years, uh, there's a champion world class world uh, forging championship. It's called. It's um, a uh, basically a, a blacksmith Olympics, and artists from all over the world, you know, converge on this little town in, in Tuscany, or, or um, in a little mountain village, and and basically. Uh, compete. Uh, there's always a theme announced before, so we have a little time to come up with an idea, practice it, and then we show up there to um, to make it. We have to make the sculpture in three hours, so it's it's crazy challenging, you know. But it's uh, I, the limitations, you know, create um, I, I think some uh, some nice ideas. It really makes you, you know, distill down to something I think uh, really essential about a piece, uh, and so you get different different people from all over the world, different interpretations of a similar theme. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute, uh, you know, experience of a lifetime. I've been fortunate to go three times now and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll actually uh, do well in the next one. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely um, a big part of what I do now. I, it's kind of that thing that um, I'm thinking about uh, here and there, you know, uh, throughout the year. Definitely. And you had a specific event two years ago, I think before the pandemic that you were telling me about it, where they the theme was something related to Leonardo da Vinci. And you kind of said, fuck that. I'm going to do yeah. something about Gramsci. Can you right, tell right. the story? <laughs> yeah, they, they, apparently it was uh, a 600 year anniversary of, of da Vinci's uh, death. So it was uh, the, 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 the theme was now, now I should say the previous two contests were uh, puppets and masks, which was, I thought, fucking brilliant. I, I absolutely love that theme. Uh, and then the one after that was dreams. And yeah, so we go from puppets and masks to dreams to genius Leonardo da Vinci, 1619 to 19, 2019. And um, yeah, I, I just immediately hated that, that theme for a lot of reasons, for a lot of reasons. But the, for, for the most basic one is I knew it was going to produce a bunch of representational art, people doing just copycat and some, you know, Da Vinci uh, invention or, or whatever. And, and, and then I knew that there would be people that would literally just try to make a Da Vinci face. I knew that was going to happen. And sure enough, 
number one placement one and three went to people who did basically uh, da Vinci face paperweights is what it looked like to me. Uh, second place was a compass, which I thought at least had some kind of, uh, you know, artistic, uh, uh, you know, statement there, but yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I said, no, I can't. After thinking about it, I almost immediately said, fuck this. Like, I can't do this. Like, I, I just don't, I thought about it for a little while. I tried to give it a fair uh, uh, chance, but then I realized it was the very theme itself that I was having a reaction to. The idea of taking genius and putting it uh, into this new sort of conception of the idea that genius is something that particular artists have, that it's like some kind of inspiration uh, from God, the gods, the creative gods just bless a particular person here and there in history. Uh, and not only is that just kind of hocus pocus bullshit, but it also goes against the entire concept throughout history. So genius before recent history meant uh, more of a channeling. You know, you were a medium for something, but it wasn't like you were some special person, you know? And admittedly, Leonardo da Vinci, if you're gonna, you know, play that game and come up with someone who is unique and seems to be, you know, extraordinarily talented, uh, he would be one that, you know, you could, you would definitely point to. But I think we also forget, again, this is the, the whole point of my reaction against it. Leonardo da Vinci, um, was a product of a society. He had some of the best tutors and the best artists in the world. He was in the best place in the world to be creating art. He was a flamboyant homosexual and lived in a society that allowed him to do his thing. Um, he was as much of a product of his culture than, than any other artist. So I, found, I find that that is never a depiction you hear about da Vinci. It's always like this, 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 you know, um, like demigod with this unbelievable talent, uh, this autodidact, which is, I think, uh, not, a, there's no such thing really. And um, so, yeah, so I, I said, yeah, I can't do that. And um, so I started thinking about the term genius and what that really meant historically, how I wanted to interpret it. And I immediately thought about Antonio Gramsci and the organic intellectual. Uh, I thought that that was a concept that would be one that, first of all, he, I would say, is an Italian genius. So they're in Italy, you know, I wasn't going to completely disrespect their guy. I was going to give him just another version, of, you know, another Italian genius. And, 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 and I think um, in that reaction, sort of, uh, um, you know, be able to take up that commentary and remind them of some other aspects of their cultural heritage. And so I thought Gramsci was a perfect example. Um, so, yeah, I thought about, about him and this, this idea also for me, uh, inherently works with a blacksmith because blacksmiths are a different type of artist. I mean, most blacksmiths are what people would think of as craftsmen, craftspeople, and it's um, uh, it's a very blue collar sort of art form, and it's uh, it's something that I feel like if anyone you know if that idea of Gramsci's would appeal to any. Uh, uh, you know, artist, it, it would be the blacksmith artist. But yeah, so anyway, I'll, I'll stop for a second, take a sip, and uh, and let you. You know, if you have any thoughts. Well, I, I think that uh, a part of the story that I don't think I've ever asked was, did you did you get in trouble for just saying fuck Da Vinci? I'm gonna go with Gramsci. No, I just, I mean, I I piss people off in conversations. I was in Bologna, and I was doing some sketches, uh, and someone asked me. I had a couple guys sit beside me, spoke a little English. I speak a little Italian, so I was 
had a conversation and they were bankers and one of them was very upset with it. You know, just like, ah, this is crap. You know, um, he said it was socialist art. Uh, you know, he's, he immediately read a hammer and a sickle when there was just a hammer. Um, but, but, um, you know, so I had that kind of reaction and apparently Gramsci has a grandson or something who is not, you know, maybe a bit of a, a of a putz and, you know, not, not a lot a person very well liked and, and, uh, in Italy. So a few people seem to know that, but, one thing that I notice is a lot of people don't, and, and they just don't know that much about them other than they align them with, with uh, you know, socialism. So uh, other than any kind of reprimand, of course not. I just got, um, I knew that I would not be able to place if, if um, and, and you know, I, that was, that's never my goal anyway. I don't go there to, to, to get uh, a medal. I go there basically to create a piece of art that allows me to have a conversation about things like this. So I got to talk with people about the themes of the, of the sculpture. I got to th talk about, you know, um, what the organic intellectual and, and Gramsci has meant to American traditions. Um, um, you know, obviously the parallels with the civil rights uh, and, and some of that commentary is, is uh, leans heavily on 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 organic intellectual um, uh, that concept and so yeah I was I, I I'll actually if you want to I'll grab the sculpture and bring it over here I don't think there's enough light in the studio I've got the prototype here so yeah yeah I'll be right and I'm gonna grab the other two that I did this year yeah yeah I can hear you so when you come back just so that you marinate on these questions while you're getting the sculptures. Um, what specifically about Gramsci, uh, Gramsci's conception of the organic intellectual uh, created a good space for you to land at after rejecting Da Vinci? Um, and how would you juxtapose, um, uh, I guess the theme was genius, so how would you juxtapose the genius of uh, uh, Gramsci or an organic intellectual with that of Da Vinci as someone oh. who's influenced and, and, and right, right, lived right. by some of the wealthiest uh, people in his society? So um, I'll have to show you the angle. There's not a, light, a lot of light in the studio at night, but you can see here, and I'll send you a photo so you can kind of check it out. But uh, so a lot of things I came up with on the fly because of the parameters, not a lot of time. Uh, I had a, a much more elaborate sculpture, but there was not enough time to, to do it. So I ended up uh, coming up with a simpler idea that it was, I ended up being a little more elegant. But um, so my thinking was this, uh, with this particular piece. Um, you know, we know this, we know what we've already said about, about, um, uh, uh, Da Vinci, but I thought about what it means to, a lot of people forget that a, lo a lot of what Da Vinci worked on was war machines for the elite. And so think about that for a minute, you know, Da Vinci is a guy who's making war machines for, for the wealthy families. I started thinking about the w other ways that we use our genius, um, and not only as, as, as uh, you know, people that are working in their communities doing craft and, and, and you know, what we might think of now as more manual labor, um, but um, a lot of people that use their genius for people that aren't the, the elite families end up behind bars. So um, like Gramsci, so you see here, uh, there's his spectacles, you know, he's known for those little glasses. So I cut those into this plane and, um, and the bars, of course, symbolize the prison that he spent uh, most of his his uh, career in there. So, you know, most of his writing, you know, come from his his prison um, uh, notes. Uh, this hammer, obviously, for the for the 
to symbolize, you know, uh, the working artist uh, and the labor, but also um, you see how it's tied to the bars here. I thought about, I thought about, um, you know, Gramsci in his prison cell uh, doing his, his work, but I also thought about another organic intellectual from the U.S., Martin Luther King Jr., who also, you know, uh, wrote one of his most famous writings, uh, The Letter from the Birmingham Jail, which is, I don't know if we said that's my hometown, that's where we are, where I am right now. Sorry, I'm trying to turn off this flashlight, and I don't know how. Um, I'm even worse with technology than you, Carlos. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so we'll figure that out later. But anyway, so that, that was some of my thoughts with this. Uh, I also, you can't, I don't know if you could tell here, but it's coming out of a, of a tray of coal. Um, so I won't, I won't over explain the piece. I'll tell you some of the essential things, but it kind of, it kind of uh, hurts my soul to completely pick apart every little part, part and spoon feed what I was thinking here. Uh, but anyway, so this idea of how the working class person is um, sort of removed from the art world and in so many ways. And so in, in a much way that philosophy or academic intellectual work um, uh, gives us this notion that, you know, of course, I'm just repeating Gramsci here that uh, that intellectual work is something that's done, you know, in the academies and that uh, that's something different than the, the, the work that the everyday person may do. Uh, I think our art is, is, you know, obviously, I think suffered a similar fate. Uh, people think that there are these crafts people, these, these uh, and then there are artists that, and they're, they're, they're completely separate. And I, I would suggest that that's not the case. I thought that I wasn't creative. It goes back to the genius idea of Da Vinci. Now, this idea that artists are these eccentric, special characters that you're born an artist. You're either born an artist or you're not. You're born a philosopher or you're not. And that's absolutely just not true. Uh, I didn't get in this originally to make art. You know, I didn't know that I had it in me. Sometimes I, I struggle to come up with anything creative. And then sometimes I'm inspired. But that inspiration is not some, um, you know, out of nowhere genius that, that I'm tapping into or something, you know, biologically special. All these ideas come from uh, my interactions with my community, the work that I do, literally taking the materials of the earth and shaping them. And, and the, the way that you end up into a sort of dance with, uh, with, the, with your, your tools and your materials. I mean, we can get into Hegel later if you want to talk about. It. I think there's there's a lot of good you know uh, uh, you know resource for for philosophical conversation on that. But uh, but anyway, for me, that's a part of what I wanted to do is talk about the division between high art and the blacksmith artist, the craftsperson versus the the high artist. Uh, I wanted to talk about the kind of work that we do. Uh, the kind of clients that we have, who are our funders, what kind of work are we doing for them, what kind of, you know, are we working for, you know, the elites and, you know, and, and what, what exactly does that mean for, for us as artists? Um, and, and of course, I wanted to, to talk about how uh, there should be no disparity uh, between this notion of, of an, organ an intellectual um, that we think of as, as, as obviously something for academia versus person that might use uh, their mind for things that might we might think of as more blue collar work um, and we're all using our mind in one way or the other and I think anybody that does skilled labor um, physical manual labor uh, comes away with a completely different thought of this first of all 
you're really exercising your mind. It's not something that, you know, you just, just, we're just a bunch of, you know, cavemen over here slamming, you know, hammers on hot things. Um, it's a lot of thought that goes into this and a lot of creativity. It's far, um, I think, more challenging than some of the more uh, so-called white collar intellectual work that I've done. Uh, so I think, um, I think a lot of that was part of what I was trying to get to in those conversations. I think that's very interesting. You touched on a few points here that I think we, we should hammer out um, or, or clarify a bit more. One of the, one of the things that, that Marx is emphasizing already from a very early age in the, in the manuscripts of 43, 44 that he's writing in Paris is that part of the mm-hmm. effects of, of capitalism and uh, of, of a system uh, centered around exploitation is that labor ends up bifurcating itself and ends up dividing itself on one end as physical activity and on the other end as mental activity. And for Marx, one of the things that makes us uniquely human is our ability mm-hmm. to engage consciously through labor with, with nature. And it seems like one of the themes that you're, you keep picking up is how there is no distinction in the work that you do between mental and physical work. They're both presently there and shaping the material around you. Do you have anything else to, to say in relationship to that? Well, I would just say that I think about it sometimes when I get into a workflow. Um, you know, this whole sort of mind-body duality is, is, seems to be completely eliminated. Uh, you hear about athletes that get into a zone and, you know, they're not thinking. Uh, their bodies are just reacting. There becomes sort of a unity there. Uh, and oftentimes it becomes a, a unity with the materials themselves, uh, where the objects, and this is where we could definitely go a little Hegelian here, but I think um, these, these objects uh, that, that, that I'm working with become, uh, there becomes a sort of um, unity with them so that even so much so that every now and then I have an idea beforehand of how I'm going to shape something or what I'm going to do. And then the metal just starts talking to me. It starts shaping and doing things. And without thinking about it, without stopping and planning, I just go with it. And then it comes out to be something completely different, usually better than, than what I had intended. And I think most people that do manual labor experience to some degree a level of that. And I, I'm using the term manual labor like because it's the common term. But then, of course, this is not the way I feel about it. I don't believe that there's this, this distinction. I think these distinctions... Uh, can be uh, more misleading than they are descriptive. So yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I hadn't read that, that, that part of Marx and I'll definitely uh, try to find that later because that, that sounds very interesting. But yeah, I, I wholeheartedly feel that it was when I started doing this kind of work that the whole world started to make a lot more sense to me. Um, and, and it was because this engaged my mind in certain ways that, that work previously had not. So there was there were intellectual things going on, and and I think I you know I have a friend that always talks about burning new bro- grooves in the brain, you know, and you know we know from neuroscience that there is something to that this idea of you know rearranging our, our neurons in ways, but but no there's there's absolutely something going on when you that 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 ceases to to really find this distinction between the intellectual and the manual, the mind and the body, uh, and even the self and the object. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you're, you're touching up on is um, the sort of uh, division that has also been created between craft work or just uh, uh, manual labor and art. 
Um, and again, one of the themes that, that Marx hits on, especially early on, is that we don't just do things because we need them, but we have the unique capacity to do things in line with aesthetic values. We have the unique capacity to mm. work in a way that's also artistic. So what would you say is the relationship of art to work? Is, is work inherently artistic? Um, and I think that contextually, this is a, an important question because one of the things that's uh, sort of hegemonized on the left, and, and I was talking uh, with one of our mutual friends, Justin, about it the other day, um, is the, the fact that many on the left now have this uh, abolitionist attitude towards work itself. And they're not able to dig into the nuance that there's a difference between work and how it phenomenologically feels under exploitative conditions and conditions under a society that is divided according to antagonistic classes. And work when it is able to be done freely, creatively, and when you're able to exert, like you say, your creative, mental, and physical powers. So um, it can work be artistic? Is work inherently artistic? Um, how, how can we both uh, uh, claim, how, how can we both aim to um, create better conditions for labor um, while also realizing that there's something almost intrinsic in work that, that is valuable, that's enjoyable? I think to, to hit on that latter point and what you said earlier about this, this strange idea of uh, people wanting to work abolition. I think what we're diagnosing is the wrong problem there. The work's not the problem. It's the alienation that's the problem. I don't know how that's getting confused with the work. Um, the problem is the type of work that we do, the type of work that becomes alienating, the type of work that um, where we, we, we are just involved in just endless reification and, 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 and also I, I, I speak about blacksmithing sometimes as if it's a singular art, you know, a person at the fire by themselves, and sometimes that happens. But in these tournaments, we have assistance, we have a community. There's the collaborative aspect of art that I think is, is so often, I think, forgotten about and ignored. Uh, you know, and I, I just, we've talked about it before, like genius is not produced that way. The kind of work that, 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 that I would advocate is both manual, physical, uh, intellectual, and collaborative. And um, the thing about this is, yes, yeah, sometimes I get commissions from uh, people, and you know, but but I don't. They don't just come to me and say, "Here, do this." There's a collaboration between me and the client. They have some ideas. I add my, you know, technique to it. Um, but there's this this sense of of connectedness between uh, myself and the client, and then the work that I'm producing. Um, there's, there's, there's not that distance there. And, and I, I have this relationship between, you know, the people that I buy the steel from the people that, that help me, you know, the community of artists, the clients, um, the type of work that I do, um, it, it, it's, it's, nothing has ever felt quite like that. Uh, and I, I think that was one of the things that I fell in love with about this was my connection to the work. I did not feel alienated from those products or my, my, clients, uh, the people that, that purchase this or uh, trade for or whatever. Um, and so I think that's, that's absolutely important. Uh, I think they're, I think that kind of work is just fundamental to who we are. And I don't want to sound too much like, you know, Noam Chomsky here, or you know, some kind of, you know, essentialist, but I do think that there's something to this idea. You know, he's always talking about how the mind has 
Uh, we ha have our sort of hardwired for language and these, th that means we also are hardwired for sort of creative expression. I think to some degree, there's something to be said about that and, and our work. I think we, we express who we are through the work, but also this is part of who, how, we, how we become, uh, I think, uh, subjects. And when, when there's such a disconnect between ourselves and the work, I think that gets in the way of, of this, you know, this, this, the subjects that we, we, we the, the subjectivities obviously that we inhabit. I, I think this kind of work is definitely a way of, or, or it, it, you know, not everybody's gonna go off and be a blacksmith. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying re-envisioning the way we see that, that type of work, uh, craft versus art, manual versus, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, intellectual labor. Those kind of divisions I think are, 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 are really, uh, uh, very, very, uh, very much um, uh, a, a negative uh, in our culture now. I think you touched a very important point there about distinguishing between uh, work that's that's meaningful, non-alienating work that you can see yourself in the object, and then the work that is completely separated from you, that's meaningless. You're not involved in the process of, of the work as if it's something that's creatively coming out of you that what you want to do is really finish the day so you can go home, watch TV and drink a beer or something. Um, uh, the question I had for you is one of the things that Marx uh, uh, connects to our alienation um, and he flushes this out later on in his career by the time he's writing Capital is that when the products that are alienated present themselves as commodities to us because they're alienated we are unable to see them as the results of labor as the results of these unique mm -hmm. human interactions uh, yes. that that took a social element took as you call it a collaborative element and that took humans right we're able to see things and we see this world uh, of commodities just interacting with each other uh, and we're unable to see yeah. that behind those are human beings so has has the opportunity that you have, which it, it's a pretty unique opportunity to have under capitalism. Not many people have the capacity to engage in, in being in work, but has that opportunity helped in like removing the commodity fetish? Do you engage with the products that you uh, see in your everyday life somewhat differently than than you did before that? Do you like think about labor or the work that goes behind? Uh, that's a uh, yeah, I think that's actually, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of my favorite, um, I think, uh, uh, sort of results of this. And, and I'll, I'll talk about real quick, I'll show you something. So uh, one of the, I'm bringing an assistant over from Italy um, uh, in a couple of weeks, actually. And uh, I met him there and I chose him to be my partner to, you know, for my sculpture here on this one. And uh, he saw my work. I just met him. We're drinking Negronis. And, and uh, he asked me, you know, he's three sheets to the wind. And he says, well, do you have a person to help you in the morning? And I said, no, I just I hadn't found anybody. I don't know. I didn't want to impose. He's like, what do you mean impose? Like, and, he, and he asked me, he's like, let me see some of your work. So I showed him Instagram or whatever. And he immediately stopped and just said, I'm, I'm going to do it. I like your hand. He says this in, in Italian, but it, it translates to I like your hand. Now, what he meant by that was this, I'll show you, you can kind of see it on this, but this is the sculpture that I did. The lighting's a little bit off, but you see these, you see the texture here, right? You see, you know, now in certain pieces and you can't really see it very well in the lighting here, but in certain pieces, you really see this hand. Everyone's hand looks different. Everyone from the hammer, your, your technique, 
everyone's piece will begin to have sort of a unique, uh, this would be what Walter Benjamin would call the aura. You know, you actually see the artist's impressions that, on the original. So anyway, I say that to say this, uh, there's something about this that becomes inextricably tied to the creator. This product here becomes something that you, you, you see the artist, you see the craftsman, craftsperson in. Um, so there's that aspect to this that I find uh, uh, important. Uh, but, but, but I noticed something that you, you asked about. Ever since I started doing this work, the whole world has completely changed. I, I don't see the world the same anymore. Now, you don't have to go and become a carpenter, a blacksmith, or anything like that for this. But if, if we just have a connection to and, and connecting the things of our world to the people that create them, you, you cease to see the world the same. So now when I go to the gym, I still work out like once or twice a week and I'll go into a gym. And before, when I was all my life, you know, you just, there are all these things there to work out on. So you sit down and you put heavy weight on a bar and you, you know, or you on some kind of machine and you just start working on it. Never before did I ever look to see like, wait, how the hell is this built? Before I put 300 pounds over my head, let me see if these welds look good. Let me see like how this thing is constructed. Or let's say you go onto a uh, onto a, a patio or go upstairs and you just lean on the on the rail, not knowing if this rail is poorly made or you know if you're on a balcony at a party with too many people, you just you're just on a balcony. You know we've heard all the horror stories about parties that have crashed and multiple people have died. And I was in Chicago one summer when this happened, like 30 people died because there were too many people on a balcony. All that to say, like. Now that, that could never happen to me now. When I walk into a place, I appreciate the person who put the conduit together because that symmetry of the conduit of four bars just going in a cord, that's just beautiful to me. But aside from the aesthetic quality, I, I don't take anything for granted anymore. I look and see how things are made. I also, this is important, I also understand that if I need to fix something, I don't have to call a specialist because now I appreciate how something's made. So now I, I'm, I'm more in touch with uh, the people that originally made this. I appreciate their work more. And so, of course, I'm going to value their labor. Um, but I also am now connected to the things. Uh, I'm not completely alienated from all the objects in the world. And I feel I feel much more connected. Um, and that, that maybe that sounds like a, a small point, but I'm telling you, it, it really just changes the way you see the world after that. You become less passive in the world. You don't think, well, if Home Depot doesn't have it, I guess, I guess there's no luck for that. You know, like you, you think, oh, I could, I could make that. I mean, it's not that hard. Or I've got somebody on the phone I could call because I know, I know a craftsperson here in town or whatever. Like you, you just start to inhabit a different world after that. Yeah, it would seem like it almost like humanizes the world. Like everything you see, you stop just seeing things. You start seeing things as what Marx would call the objectification of people. You start to see these. Yeah the whole uh, 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 societal and, and collective process of labor that goes behind, that's behind every single object. And it's very easy uh, to forget. And I think the way, the central way that we engage with the world under capitalism requires that forgetting that there's labor behind everything. Um, part of why we can continuously devalue labor and the working class is because we don't see that it is at the core of everything. Um, so it's interesting right. to mention that I have a, a good buddy of mine who works in rail and he says that, look, ever since I, I went into rail, now I can look at railroads and I'm like, 
either I made that or people who do what I do every day made that. Um, and he just looks at the tracks and it, it almost brings this experience, this very humanistic experience of him uh, uh, hammering down and, and maybe the jokes that he cracks with his coworkers and stuff. So um, one, one of the other questions that I wanted to ask, you made this distinction and we didn't explore it much when you mentioned it, but this distinction between art uh, in the white collar sense, and then art that comes from craft people, we've sort of analyzed its relationship to work. But can, can, do you think there's a, a class element behind it? Um, is, is there something uh, in uh, this, this sort of uh, art, artist as a, as a professional artist? Um, is there something almost bourgeois in it that, that is always tied to the status quo? And the other side of that question, is there something, uh, is there a revolutionary potential in like the sort of work that you do that comes from organic artists that are, are just, you know, laborers and stuff like that? So, uh, I, I think so. I think, um, well, to get on the distinction aspect, I think I was, I was reading something uh, actually last night. I didn't finish it, so I can't really represent it well. But uh, Tolstoy wrote uh, a lot about art. And one of the things that he was mentioning and this piece I was reading was um, that part of the problem is is that art has become uh, you know turned into this thing of of you know the upper class and the, uh, the educated uh, and it becomes a thing of specialists and and for him art should should be be able to uh, communicate and to uh, evoke feeling and thought and and everyone otherwise you know there's, there's probably some kind of uh, bullshit, you know, excuse me, uh, motivations behind it. And um, for me, that's, that's the way I feel like, obviously, when I do something like this, if you don't know who Gramsci is, and you don't notice from the title, you may not come up with any of these things that I'm talking about. This one here is called Asclepios. This is about this, I'll tell you later, we can finish later with this, this most recent one, which I think looks even probably more socialist. Um, and you see the whole thing, but you know, but this idea here, uh, it's a snake, you can see with a hammer and it has, you know, resemblances of a shape you're probably familiar with. Um, but, um, you know, if you have these, uh, if you have these ideas, then yeah, sure, you might be able to really come to some new thoughts. But I think part of what art should be doing is not should not be an inside joke with the 20 other people that that, that might be able to understand this, you know, I think for me, um, maybe there are 20 people that would get this in a different way and, and, and we'd be able to laugh about it uh, or you know have a great conversation about it. But I, I would hope that people that don't have the background uh, that I've been blessed with uh, would still be able to find something in this that would, first of all, connect them to an artist, to, to, to bring them into this world of creativity and expression uh, through the objects of our world. Secondly, it, it should evoke for me some type of passion, some type of feeling or thought. And if I've done that, then I've already done my job as an artist. Um, and, and then when you have the sort of communal sharing of the ideas or the feelings or thoughts that come from that, I think they become an integral part of an expressive community um, along with all the other things we've already talked about, all the benefits of it. But, but I think, um, there are ways to also 
get beyond some of the stale conversations. I'm sure you and the world that you're in, uh, especially in academic circles, um, there becomes sort of a formalized way of talking about everything. And there are certain rules and conventions. And if you don't you know, follow those, then obviously you're, you know, you might be censored or, you know, not invited to your parties, whatever. <laughs> but I think through art, we can find ways to, um, to express and, and feel um, uh, the ability to navigate uh, some of our thoughts and uh, conversations and in different forms um, that I think allow, um, and, and because they're so multivalent, you know, because of the different interpretations, I think um, there's something very powerful about having a sculpture where there are five people in a room and five people with different thoughts about it that now have to contend with it, engage with each other. Um, that kind of uh, aspect of this, I think, is is far more important than you know whether you know I'm thought of as you know the, the the one of the elite artists in the area or if I'm winning you know awards at, at shows or, or, or acknowledged by uh, by certain academic circles um that that i think is when you're in that world i think you're, you've just gone to a different place that's not really what i'm what i'm interested in i don't think there's much value in that um but but anyway i, I think yes so i think to some degree there are aspects to this that i mean i don't want to be too big with it and, and say you know uh it's critical to any type of revolutionary movement but i think the images um the forms, the, the, not only just the thoughts, but, the, but these images stay with us and they become emblematic of people and times and struggles and dynamics that uh, I, I think um, are, are critical to, to, to any, any social movement. Um, and you could just, you know, pick any, I mean, you, socialism is a great example. I mean, so, so this has got, got a kind of a, a rich um, history of, of art attached to it as well. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I think I think it I think it is very important to that. I don't know. What do you what do you what do you think? Well, I, I'm wondering you as as an artist. I don't have an artistic bone in my body. I think you're frozen. Am I back now? Or am I frozen? You're good. I see you there, Carlos. Yeah, yeah. Do you hear me? Don't say that. It's not true. <laughs> what, what was that? I heard you for a second. Oh, uh, do you hear me now again? You said you didn't have an artistic bone in your body. That's all that came through. Uh, oh, I, I think it was, it was the negative point that came through. Um, <laughs> uh, but but uh, would you would you say then that there's a there's a difference in the duty of the revolutionary artist uh, versus the the regular artist? Would you? even draw such a dichotomy as revolutionary artists versus non-revolutionary artists or is all art in some way or form revolutionary like one of one of uh, Engels's favorite writers was Balzac and he had <laughs> nothing at all revolutionary about him um so uh, is is it a different duty that the revolutionary artist has huh I, I, I'm not sure if I would want to make general statements about that. I think, I think obviously we get our inspiration from multitude of places, you know. Um, and I don't think that um, art is any different there, of course. I think because art just inherently has an ability to demand explanation, 
you know, you, you look at an art and a piece of art and, you know, it, it, it evokes you to tarry with it. What does this mean? What, what is it, what is it evoking in me? And I think that is powerful, right? Uh, that you can, because it's called art. All right. Let's just assume that, you know, we'll go with the, with the convention here. Once something is called art, we then are then asked to interpret it. So, you know, there are certain things that I think, um, you know, one of the things that Nietzsche's biggest, biggest critiques of, of religion is reading the Bible, you know, it teaches us to read very poorly, you know, you're taught to, to read in, in really horrible ways. Um, I would say, you know, I, I, I spent all week trying to get people to understand Foucault because the textbook was completely uh, wrong about interpretation, I think, of Foucault. But, but the reason is, is because ideas like power, ideas like oppression, we think we know what those words mean. So we don't really tarry with them. We don't really expand upon them. We, we think, well, this is ready-made. We can interpret this. We don't really need to go any further here. Um, I think philosophy, you know, obviously people like Foucault would, would, would force one to re-examine their definitions. I think good art um, forces one to, 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 to contend with, with interpretation to, um, and, 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 you know, if you, if, and that, that sort of inspiration, uh, I'm, I'm sure I've, I've interpreted pieces of art completely different than say the artists themselves. And, uh, and, and it's inspired me in, in ways that, um, you know, that, that, that were life-changing for me. Uh, so I think that, that, that aspect of it is important. Now, as far as the artist, though, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more didactic for, for most people's taste, but that's what I see my role as. I see my role as being able to um, create something that might evoke a little bit of, of uh, um, maybe might evoke some contention sometimes. Uh, and I'm not doing that just to arouse that. That's not that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but I'm trying to to provoke thought. And then and then yes, I want to talk about it because um, I feel like that's what I'm. That's, that's at least what I can offer is a little bit of conversation uh, about about some of these themes that I would never be able to do. Uh, I think in other ways. I think the artist has a privileged position there, uh, and so. Not that I think that's necessarily fair, but in that role, I'll, 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 I'll at least try to do my best to, to create ways in which um, I might be able to uh, alter the conversation or at least expand, uh, expand it in certain ways. Uh, but that only is because I you know, do the work. Uh, I think, um, so the art is important for that. Yeah. I have another question, because I know you hold uh, an anti-essentialist uh, framework as I do. Um, and are quite dialectical minded. Um, how how can we hold an anti-essentialist framework, an anti-metaphysical uh, framework of thought, and also acknowledge that somehow, man, uh, Beethoven is extremely popular in China. Somehow works of art that have no relationship to one culture or to the specific epoch of that culture are just embraced aesthetically to their maximum potential um is there something you in art that taps into a certain universal this is a question uh, for for the listeners that that we also addressed in um the last podcast we did on art with dr riggins and uh and we we're focusing on the angle from from Kis christopher uh, codwell british uh, uh cp uh 
communist uh, militant. But I'm wondering, as as an artist, um, do you think there's a universal aspect in in the work of art? Hmm. Uh, it's difficult for me. That's a conversation that I, I go back to uh, those themes a lot. Um, obviously, as a as a artist, but also a student of history. Um, I I was originally a little more into this idea of universal appeal. You know, I was a, I came across a video of Joseph Campbell doing an interview with Bill Moyers when I was young and. Uh, he was talking a lot about Carl Jung and like archetypes of the collective unconscious, things like that. Um, over the over time, I've become less favorable about those ideas. But I think in order to find those uh, uh, those similarities across cultures, for instance, you know, they would take up in this conversation, obviously, myth and how myths are, are very similar. Art can be very similar across cultures. Um, but you have to also, I think, um, ignore far more things that are different. Right. But let's let's take that point for a minute. You know, Beethoven, people in China love Beethoven. Uh, I would say in that case, um, there are things that that I think could be almost universal, but are, are at least capable of appeal um, to almost anyone. But I think there are probably certain people that are born in a certain uh, culture. And again, we're, we're kind of speculating here. They would not like Beethoven at all, right? <laughs> their their culture and their musical forms did not prepare them to to feel uh, the way you and I might feel, you know, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or or whatever. Um, so I, I don't want to get. Uh, I always have to catch myself from from making those kinds of generalizations. Um, but I would say this: um, it is a fact that even babies notice. And know the difference between symmetry and and dissymmetry. Um, children, like infants, know uh, an asymmetrical face. Uh, studies seem to show that quite clearly. We know uh, discordance from, you know, symphonic harmonies. Like that is something that's intuitive. I, I, I do so in that regard. I, I would have to be a, like sort of a Chomsky in there. I think yes, our noetic structure probably, you know, there are certain things that. Uh, are going to be universal that then they're going to obviously relate to art. Uh, there are certain forms of art that I think aesthetically, again, we don't get too much into aesthetic theory here. Uh, not that I even understand it all that well, but um, I think that, yes, it's, it's, there's, there are certain forms and there are certain expressions that are going to be nearly universally appealing. Um, and, but, but what does that really mean though? I don't know. Like, okay, so let's use your example. So let's say someone in Beijing is loving, you know, Beethoven, but they don't know anything about Beethoven, the German language, the culture. It's just the music. Um, what does that mean? Right. Is that really experiencing Beethoven the way, um, you know, someone and from our, our cultural epoch would, you know? That's a good point, because that almost ties back into what's behind the piece. Right? Are you reifying uh, the Ninth Symphony if you uh, don't know that the poem in there is from Schiller and you don't know what the words mean, right? Um, are you really engaging I, with, with the piece uh, or are you just engaging with like a, a reified uh, projection? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I don't know, it's, it's difficult, uh, but it, it brings up the question of taste as well. 
and the relationship of taste to the aesthetic experience. Um, we seem to talk in, in general uh, as a culture uh, as taste being something that you can cultivate. Um, and I think there's two approaches that you can end up taking to the question of the cultivation of taste, which is that the cultivation is itself not a process of being able to acquire like this myth of a higher taste, but just changing your environment so that you can begin to appreciate the sorts of things that correlate to that environment. And the other approach would naturally be that, no, there is this higher form of uh, aesthetic experience that's possible in these certain artistic objects. And that in order for one to engage in those experiences, you have to cultivate your taste. I think back at my personal experience, and I wasn't a fan of classical music at all, but somehow like from a very young age, you mentioned babies, but I remember from a very young age, I was listening to like Legaton or something, but if I heard uh, like classical music, somehow I was able to understand like there's something objectively more valuable to this, right? I can tell that a whole lot more labor and ex experience and um, a whole lot more genius is behind it. Although I wasn't able to aesthetically um, uh, really uh, appreciate it, that was something that I had to develop, right? That my aesthetic taste was something that I had to develop. So um, does that does that play a fact, mm -hmm. the, the role of taste and development? And how would you read the role of taste? Uh, well, I think absolutely. Like, I'm not going to pretend for a second. I don't think that, that taste is, uh, that, that we can sort of make valuative statements. Um, to what degree, you know, that's up for debate. But um, that's part of why you work hard to be uh, a better artist. You know, they're, they're, dilettantes that come through and you see them in art circles and they they pretty much just get high and hang out and occasionally throw some stuff on a canvas and you know um pretend that that's the same as someone who really works hard to to fine-tune their craft you know and um i think that's that kind of probably flows from this you know sort of bullshitty notion of like divine inspiration and and all that no i think to be a good artist to be a good writer to be a good musician um Sure, there, there's going to be levels of talent there, but but practicing the craft um, does two things. It, 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 of course, makes you better at what you're doing and allows you the ability to express yourself or, or whatever even more. But but also it makes your taste better. Um, I mean, I listen you know, to a lot of a lot of good music growing up. I listen to a lot of really shitty music, too. And now I listen to it and I think, oh, wow, that was that was a phase of mine, but man, that stuff was really bad. But even today, like I know that I like really bad things. You know, I ate, uh, so I was in some client's house measuring up a, a handrail and I had a bowl of Halloween candy there and I couldn't resist, but jumping in for a couple of Tootsie Rolls. And then I was halfway down the street and I felt like shit. My stomach was all upset. I was like, why did I eat those jumbo Tootsie Rolls? That stuff is garbage. You know, it's like, it's bad. It's not good, but you know, I loved it for a few minutes. So uh, there's something to be said for taste. And I definitely think that it's important to cultivate it. And I think, um, so yes, I would say that you become better at reading art, just like you become better at reading philosophy after much practice of it. I don't think that, just like I don't think the, the artist is divine, I don't think art is either. I don't think you just make something amazing and then it just you know, it's like Fitzcarraldo, you know, the old Herzog film, like he had this idea that he was going to go down to Peru and just 
play them, you know, opera music and the natives were just going to come out of the jungle and build a ship for him and, you know, like do all the work and, you know, I guess put on shoes and start, you know, working in factories like they were going to all of a sudden just be civilized from hearing from hearing this beautiful classical music. Uh, you know, obviously it doesn't work that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't think art has that ability. I think uh, to, to, to understand for art to do its work, we have to also create a culture that respects art. And I would say that as far as the same goes for craft and any music, you know, whatever, reading. I mean, it's amazing to me the kind of garbage sometimes people get away with with uh, developing is, is sort of books. And uh, I mean, there's Jordan Peterson, for instance. I mean, there's Jordan Peterson, clearly. We have, we have to teach people, you know, as a culture, you know, we have to, we have to like really, I think sometimes value the good stuff. And, and so that we know that, oh, this is, this is absolute rubbish. You know, there's, it doesn't take much, but you, you have to cultivate that. So I think the artist is part of that, the philosopher, the social organizer, you know, we all play a part. Um, but when you, you think about it, just like as sort of a hermeneutic principle, you know, like, teaching craft art this type of labor but also teaching how to appreciate it uh this is all part of this i think larger uh human project that i think is uh is vital and i think art is is a big piece of that well you touched on some really good points there uh brother you uh the example with the tootsie rolls uh, that's i don't know if you can get a better example of the Epicurean distinction between the pleasure that turns into a pain and sometimes the pain that helps cultivate a, a higher form of pleasure. And for those listening, Epicure was the first uh, uh, materialist that, that Marx really fell in love with. It was what his dissertation was on. Um, there was a lot of topics that, that we, I feel like we might have left uh, 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 in untapped ground that we can get another episode in. We have talked ourselves into a new day for those uh, listeners, we started at 11 something and, and now it's officially a new day. <laughs> but I think we, uh, we, we can return to this uh, conversation in another podcast. I, I think there's some interesting question concerning the appreciation of art by animals. There's a few cool videos of elephants listening to Beethoven. Um, so it's not just Chinese folk, it's like other species being able to, <laughs> you know, Beethoven. Um, so thank you very much for coming on. It was a really fun talk and we definitely got it sure. again. Thank you. I'll, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be a little more prepared this time. Uh, you know, you, this was a last minute thing. I hope, I hope it turned out. I hope it was useful and, and a good conversation for, for anyone out there. I, I had fun, man. All right. Uh, yeah. Thank you for watching. This is Midwestern Marks signing out.